Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode number 1011 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. The librarian told me that he knows some of you haven't yet picked up our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, which is available on Amazon in print and Kindle. He also wanted me to remind you that all of his books are hungry for your fear. For less than a cup of coffee per story, you can feed a book your fear and keep it cold and wicked. Grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, including today's author, Mike Pilgrim. The book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. We've had several new supporters sign up on Patreon, and we all deeply thank you. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. Supporters get extra content, ad-free shows, and more. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. Today's episode features a dark tale by Wicked Library alum Mike Pilgrim, who wrote today's story, A Fish Doesn't Know, just for the Wicked Library. Today's storyteller is our dear friend and absolutely brilliant voice actress, Erica Sanderson, accompanied by a custom score written by our resident composer, Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Mike's work and buy it. It keeps him making more. You can learn more about Mike and find links to his other work on his bio page at thewickedlibrary.com and at amazon.com. Now, let's get wicked. Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> the immense shell is heavy in my hand. Its heft is a comforting pressure that tethers me right here to this moment. 
Grandmother kisses my forehead. The press of her cold lips soothes my nerves, but only a little. I open my mouth to speak, to ask for more time, to stall, anything. But she touches a finger to my lips before I can get a word out. She grins, flashing lines of immaculately white teeth, and silent as a current, withdraws into the murky shadows beyond the mouth of the cave. I will see her soon enough, as soon as my task is done, but her absence makes my heart ache nevertheless. I breathe deep, and for the first time in my life, revel in the full strength of my lungs. My vision is as clear as spring water. The concave wall of the cave is a honeycomb of ornately carved octagonal holes, the lip of each intricately etched with runes. These are stories all. The walls are scribed with tales that go back to long before the world was young. Cradling the shell like it is a newborn, I make my way to the farthest corner of the cave as Grandmother has instructed me. It takes me a moment to find the stone chair in the impossible squid ink blackness. The darkness is, of course, by design. It helps tellers to focus on nothing but the task at hand. After taking a moment to get comfortable in the chair, which feels four sizes too large for my frame, I cup the shell in both hands and carefully lift it to my lips. Then I begin to whisper my life into its hollow. The text normally arrives about eight minutes after I've hauled myself up onto my regular bar stool at the end of my shift in the horny haggis kitchen. The small of my back aches, as it always does after a double shift. The leg braces feel like cheese wires that have spent the last ten hours hungrily chewing through the fabric of my chef's whites to get at the meat of my legs. I've always hated these ugly fucking things, but they're the only reason I'm mobile at all. And as lucky as I was not to spend my life encased in an iron lung, they aren't much fun either. They're as comfortable as they are sexy, and they're about as sexy as a hippo wearing crocs. The doctors were astounded, none of whom ever expected to actually see polio in their lifetimes. But with all the crazy going on in the world, I guess I was just unlucky. Leanne, the bar manager, always has a pint and a half of whatever special beer is on tap that day waiting for me at the bar. Sometimes it's great, other times not so much. But after a full day sweating in a kitchen, it's always welcome. The half pint is for refreshment. It doesn't even touch the sides of my gullet as I pour it straight from the glass into my belly. The pint, however, is for enjoyment. And often, during the harder shifts, the thought of that first sip is the only thing that gets me through the day. And that's the moment that the phone beeps with a text from Mammy. I don't even need to look at the screen to know. Nicola, I am hungry. Feed me fish and chips. Fifteen minutes. The joke is neither funny nor insightful. The gratitude neither stated nor implied. Mammy never ever says thank you. She says that it implies weakness. It conveys an overt acknowledgement of a debt. Because then you owe them something. Being indebted to others is weakness. She knows that by now I've already cleaned the kitchen, yet she still always messages me after closing to ask. In advance would imply that she had considered me, my movements, my desires, or had any forethought concerning anyone other than herself. But that is, of course, hindsight talking. 
and tales are always better told through the far more nutrient-dense filter of hindsight. A fish doesn't know that it is underwater. The incredible weight of the deep pressing down is all it knows. The frigid salt water that engulfs its every moment of its life is just the way the world is. It's like gravity, and no one ever thinks to argue with gravity. Gravity is what gravity does. I get up from my bar stool, leaving my long overdue pint behind on the bar, and hobble back downstairs. I put my uniform back on and return to the bowels of the horny haggis, to the minute, hygienically sealed square of the universe where I alone am God. Except for Mondays and Tuesdays when I'm off. My hands are shaking as I switch on the deep fryer, although back then I never fully understood why they were shaking. My body is shot, it always has been, although I never really felt like there was a problem until Mammy started taking me to the doctors and throwing the word polio around. Mammy likes simple food, mostly. Mostly being a situation that's entirely at her discretion. She likes simple food when she cooks, of course. She'll cook up 500 grams of mince and stew it for five hours to make sure that it is in fact cooked. Then she'll freeze it in portions and eat nothing else for the next two weeks. A single portion of mince, two giant store-bought naan breads, and for vegetables, no more than eight plum tomatoes. She consumes nothing but lattes all day, then her one meal, followed by seven vodkas and a whole slab of milk chocolate. The scent of it comes out of her pores. She smells like turned milk. Eating out, however, is a different story. Her selections may seem random or even arbitrary, but they're not. They're every bit as calculated as a moon landing. It's not much of a stretch to imagine her lying beneath her embroidered duvet, touching herself as she contrives awkward meals to order. I know she lies there and spins the situations out into ever-expanding webs of inconvenience that go far beyond the bounds of that single interaction. Eating with her in restaurants is as much fun as you might imagine. I hobble ahead of her and apologise to the staff before we have even sat down. I apologise while we order, when they bring the food, when she sends it back, when we leave. I always leave a double tip. Unfortunately, someone has to pay for assholery. This once, however, it's simple enough. Fish and chips. It is as simple as a Stella Hope order gets. I should not be as thrilled about that as I am, but I am. Mammy is sitting at the table beside the fireplace when I hobble up the stairs carrying her meal. She has a drink, a double vodka and soda, that she informs me she's put on my tab. I put the plate down in front of her and I sit. I look over at the adjacent table to see who it is that Mammy was trying to indoctrinate. I recognise Sister May from her white habit. She smiles at me. I mouth the words, I'm so sorry. She in turn shrugs and mimes, it's okay, and returns to her coffee and magazine. I wonder for a moment about the cat-carrying box on the floor beside her, but Mammy interrupts my inner dialogue. I wonder for a moment about the cat-carrying box on the floor beside her, but Mammy interrupts my inner dialogue. She wants chopped parsley, so I go back down to the kitchen and get it. Then she wants lemon juice. Again, I oblige. She wants mayonnaise. I bring it. When I finally sit down with my lukewarm pint, 
she launches into a 23-minute sermon about how the business is doing. I glaze over. It doesn't matter whether I listen or not. My presence is incidental to the process of her talking. I sit. I drink. I think about my guppies circling their tank, weaving between the water plants, rainbow tails billowing behind them. I can't wait to get home. It's well after midnight before I've washed the dishes and cleaned up the kitchen to health and safety standards for the second time. It's nearly half one before I get home. It's not a long way to walk, or so regular people often inform me. Mammy, of course, doesn't offer me a lift home. She never offers me a lift. She says, and I quote, that my work clothes make her car smell like pussy. She will, however, eat nothing but poached haddock for weeks at a time, so what the fuck do I know about anything? Also, she's tired. She's had a long day at the firm. She wants a drink, she wants a shower, and my place is two streets over, so it's too far out of her way. I love her, even if she makes it difficult. She is my mother, after all. The River Drucket is one of three tributaries that feed into the Fourth River, which in turn does what rivers are supposed to do and slithers its way through the hills before rejoining the sea. It's no secret that in the last decade things have got progressively stranger. Every year the storms seem to worsen, the winds become more and more vicious. They shove over trees, tear down branches and throw them into roads. What might once have been a weird occurrence of Mother Nature losing her call and going on a rampage through the backwoods of Scotland is now standard weather for any September. Some nights after work, I lie in bed and listen as the weather pounds like a jilted lover at the walls and windows of my tiny cottage. The wind slips through any crack it can find and fills the house with banshee wails while the rain strikes and slashes on the glass. But people are resilient. They can adjust to anything if given the chance. But that doesn't stop them bitching about it down the pub. I hear it all, whether I want to or not. Carson is a wrinkled old racist with a nasty streak a mile wide, though if his spine were any more limp, it would be a pool noodle. This may not seem like a plus, but be assured that it is. When you tell him to shut the fuck up, he does. The combination of his limited cognitive ability and good old-fashioned fear guarantees that even if he could come up with a counter-argument, he's too much of a coward to try it out. Though, word to the wise... If he ever gets the chance to badmouth you, he will. If he doesn't know anything, he'll make something up. I'm as Scottish as Scottish gets. Trouble is, I grew up in a boarding school down south, the result being that I sound like an English rose. And with my accent being what it is, he of course hates me, but not as much as he loathes having gossip to tell and no one to tell it to. So, being the low IQ gold medalist he is, Carson splits the difference and waddles down to bother me in the kitchen. I know who it is long before he even speaks, from the tick-tap-tick of his cane as he works his way down the stairs towards the kitchen. Normally I smile at him and then shut the door in his face, but every now and then curiosity overpowers reason and I listen. In my defence, one can only talk to the shrimp in the deep fryer for so long before the conversation starts to loop back on itself. Carson tells me about how the river has risen up and into his flower beds the night before. He tells me that there was no dry place for him to throw his bread that morning when he went out to feed the birds. 
The wife wouldn't bring his wellies down to him so he could walk through the water to find a dry place to put bread for the birds. He goes on like this for a minute or two, but I've already checked out. Blah, 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 rivers, blah, blah, wellies, blah, blah, bridge flooded. My mind is running through the stock lists. Then I'm constructing a special for the weekend. Maybe some kind of steak? A carpetbagger, perhaps? Something stuffed with oysters? That would be nice. Then something in the old arsehole's yammering snaps me back into the now. What do you mean, break-ins? I say. Dreek doesn't get break-ins. You're talking shite, Carson. He assures me that there were six the night before. Seven if you count the cellar door. I'm more astounded by the fact that he didn't lead with the break-in at the bottle store. I was just there yesterday afternoon, I tell him. But he talks right over me. It takes me most of the rest of the day to find out the specifics. But again, people like to talk, so I hear things. Doors were forced open in the wee hours. Locals are fairly certain that it was a group of immigrants with a crowbar. It's always funny to think how the only people the locals believe capable of burglary are foreigners. People are stupid. The other thing that seems weird, though, the part that my mind wouldn't stop poking at after Leanne came down to tell me, was that nothing had been taken. Nothing that the police could discern anyway. My post-work pint is less than enough to level me that night, so I have another. I haven't heard from Mammy the last two days, which is something that unsettles me a little. I think to call her, check in that she's okay, but then logic takes over. I'm here, relaxed, comfortable, and if I pick up the phone, no matter how positive the outcome, I'll feel like shit by the time I hang up. To celebrate my newfound clarity, I order another pint. I buy a drink for Leanne, and one for Lydia, because frankly, I'm glad to see her. Lydia works the local area, though with a brain like hers I often wonder why. Every so often, when she's not on the job, our paths will cross and one of us will get the other drunk. Sometimes we end up in bed together, though not as often as I'd like. I paid her once when I first moved back to Dreek from Dorset, and the evening was nice enough, but with it being a job, it lacked the very intelligent and fiery quality that makes Lydia Stanton so appealing. She was at work, so, like the consummate professional that she is, she treated it like work. After I'd paid and we'd had sex, though, she visibly relaxed as she told me she was off the clock. Then she said something I never anticipated hearing. She asked if she could stay. We had ourselves a wonderful evening. We lay in my tiny bed watching the glow of the fish tank as the brightly coloured guppies wove through the tangle of waterweeds. Curled up in my arms, she asked me what their names were, and one by one I told her. Colin, Globby, Bert, Ernie, Babs, Keith, Mephisto. She was adamant that those were the names she would have picked too. Then, as the sky beyond the curtain began to shift from a starless pitch to calming blue, we fell into slumber. Later that morning, wearing nothing but my leg braces and an apron, I cooked her a breakfast that we ate in calm silence before she left. I didn't ask what the rest of her day was going to look like, but I remember wanting to. It's a strange thing that she's ever slept with me for free, but when it does happen, I am very, very grateful for it. And unless I'm gravely mistaken, she's happy for it too. 
Tonight, though, it's unfortunately not on the cards. She has a thing to go deal with. We've known each other long enough to know that neither of us wants her to elaborate. Unless we're both smashed and trading horror stories. Penises are funny-looking things, but the men that come attached to them are where the real weird is. I've only ever been with two men, though that might be using the word man in its loosest possible term. Lydia finishes her Tia Maria and Coke. She says thanks, slips back into her jacket and then pushes through the double doors and out into the atrocious Scottish night. For a long moment I wish I had enough money to rent her company for the evening. I'm not looking forward to the walk home. I really don't feel like being alone tonight. Leanne plants another pint in front of me. Apparently she pulled the word alone from my mind. No need to rush home, she says. The weather is proper pish out there. I smile up at her. The wind is bad tonight, but the rain is worse. It's the sort that somehow manages to come at you horizontal to the ground. I wasn't even one minute out of the haggis door and the water had soaked through my coat and filled my shoes. The chill doesn't bother me that much, nor does being drenched. The real issue is my work shoes. I worked a shift with wet shoes once when I was training. Long story short, if you like having a giant blister with toes growing off the top of it, then wearing wet shoes for a 12-hour shift is by far the most efficient way to achieve that result. Halfway home, I figure that I'm already as soaked as I could possibly be so I decide to take a little detour to the bridge to see how high the drucket really is. It's only a block over from Mammy's place. She has a beautiful patch of garden that leads right down to the edge of the river. There's no better spot in the universe than to sit in the sun and read, especially when she's away on business. I'm amazed to see that for the first time in his life, Carson was right. The bridge has been utterly swallowed by the river, the railing stones are barely visible above the raging surface of the brown water. I wonder if the folks down near the caravan park are okay. The council put in a water break a few years ago, although I'm not sure it will make enough of a difference. At home, I strip off my sodden shoes and balance them on the radiator. I feed the fish, then remove my contacts and leg braces. I take a lukewarm shower and open a tinny as I sit down in front of the TV. Honestly, I don't care what's on. It's all utter shite. People trapped on an island with nothing to do but paint their faces up like mandrills and fuck. Singing competitions that have nothing to do with actual singing ability and adverts with men who've never had to shave in their lives advertising razors. I'm so insulted by the idiocy that I'm asleep on the couch in less than eight minutes. It's after three before I manage to peel myself off the cushions, strip into my birthday suit and wobble towards my bed. This is by far my favourite part of the day, lying here watching the guppies as they flit back and forth on the other side of the glass. I talk to them sometimes. They don't answer, of course, because they're fish, but any company is better than no company. I do envy the simplicity of their existence. Swimming, eating, fucking and pooping sounds like a wonderfully trite way to be. Fish don't know how good they have it. When I wake up, it's still dark. I'm almost certain that a loud noise woke me. A crash. It felt like part of a dream. My eyesight is shit. Mammy is adamant that it's a result of the polio, but it's not. My eyes are shit and that's all there is to it. It doesn't matter how they got this way. The bottom line is that I have to live with how they are. Contact lenses and glasses and blindness are all I've ever known. 
If I'm a fish, then this is my tank. It takes me about a moment to notice the smell. It's freshly gutted mackerel, not quite completely forgotten calamari. I sit up, scramble to put my eyes on. Another crash from the front room fuels my urgency. My pulse throbs in my temple. Glasses on, the murk dissipates as my sight blooms. The door hisses open. An immense shape slides out of the shadows. It moves as if it has a limp, but the locomotion is far from ungraceful. Through the dark, I can make out its eyes. They are twin pearls, each the size of a clenched fist. They reflect back the scant light as if I'm shining a torch in a cat's face. The oceanic reek now fills the room. I've never seen the sea, not close up, but I know fish. In the light of the tank, the shadow is no longer a shadow. The eyes are not a trick of the darkness. They're cue balls set into a face that I can only describe as a humanoid fish frog. The front of the creature is covered in pale scales. It has a pot belly and no obvious genitals. Around its neck it wears a chain, a necklace with a series of chunky pendants that could be gold if one was to squint in just the right way. It flashes twin rows of needle-pointed teeth at me as though pleased with itself. But against all odds, I don't feel afraid. Not at first. The humanoid fish thing fans a scarlet dorsal fin that scrapes the ceiling and extends almost all the way to the base of its spine. It stares at me for a long second, expanding and contracting its cheeks, creating a series of moist gurgling sounds, its mouth pap-papping as if trying to form words. Naked, I stare. My heart clenches, counting the seconds, hoping that every time I blink this will all go away. I lean over to turn the light on and dispel the shadows, but the creature is on me before I can. It holds me tightly to its chest, cradling me as if I'm a lost lamb, and before I know it we're outside, the raindrops streaking down my face and onto my eyes, rendering my glasses useless. Its finned feet flip-flop on the wet tarmac. I shout and shout and shout for help. I struggle against its grip, but it's no use. My screams trigger lights to flash on in the nearby windows. Encouraged, I persist my aching throat issuing animal shrieks unlike anything I ever knew my body was capable of. Still, the thing holds me tight to its chest. I thrash my arms and do my best to kick my legs. All I need is a little more time and help will come. I see the river up ahead, hear the rapids slashing back and forth in the distant dark. I hear a yell nearby, a human yell, then a chorus of battle cries, the clanking of spades, shears, broomsticks and pickaxes. Sensing what's coming, my captor accelerates, and we're almost at the swollen edge of the river when the first strike comes down. The beast shrieks as the cast metal penetrates the tough dark scales of its back and chews into the soft flesh. I feel the creature's form stiffen like molten steel thrust into water, but even hissing in pain, its claws don't tighten around me. If anything, it holds me nearer, curling its glistening body around me as if to deflect the attacks. A curse echoes through the sodden madness. I feel the echoes of the sledgehammer blow shudder through my captor's frame. The men, they're all here now. Even with my glasses as shit as they are, I can make out some of their faces. Ali Nickel, Joseph Donnelly, Pat Loveland, Dave Robinson, and looking as wild as a mountain goat on meth, a man that I only know as Uncle Nelson. The tart stink of river water reminds me that we're close, too close to the river. I squirm, a worm frantic to escape the eminent hook. 
The Petrachian thing ploughs ahead. It opens its sawtoothed maw and brays as it holds me tight, like a prize, a feast to be savoured in the cold depths of the river. As if by a miracle, Nelson comes out of nowhere. He's screaming like it's the football finals and his team is 2-0 up. The tarnished steel of his pickaxe flashes under the tepid glow of the streetlight. The pointed end sinks into the fish thing's right eye socket. The sound that fills the dark space is a pig having its throat cut. It deafens my left ear completely before the thing drops me onto the muddy bank and plunges into the slashing water. Somebody, I have no idea who, drapes a jacket over me. I tell myself that it's to cover my modesty, but I know that it's because the queer curve of my spine and the odd configuration of my twisted limbs makes them uncomfortable. Someone has called the police. I don't know what I'm supposed to tell them, but I do my best even as I sit wrapped in a blanket at my kitchen table, my hands locked around a hot toddy that the police officer was kind enough to make me. I can hear the spaces in between their questions. They think I'm crazy. They think there was a mad backwards orgy that got out of hand. They think I'm the instigator and thus the one designated to talk their way out of it. I am just a woman, after all. They don't ask about the ragged scratches down my back, or where the blood on my face came from. It takes me two showers and another three drinks before my body collapses into sleep. After Mammy got word of what happened, she came to collect me. No daughter of mine is staying there in that shithole when there's some crazy man roaming around breaking into people's houses. I told her what had happened, the same as I told her that I'd caught the PE teacher digging through my school locker and sniffing my knickers. She said what she always said, that I'd imagined it, that there had always been something wrong with my brain, but I was still hers and no matter what I did, she would take care of me. It took a few days for the scratches to scab over, and as much as I hated sharing the space with her again, my childhood room began to feel like it did when I was young. The day after the incident, Leanne rang and said I didn't have to worry about coming in. Buddy, if they want food, I'll make them fucking sandwiches. As much as I want to relax, I can't with Mammy prowling through the house looking for disagreements. By the end of the first day, I already want to go home. She doesn't knock and almost caught me taking the edge off the situation. I told her that if she wants to roll the dice on those kind of odds, I won't stop the next time she barges in, and I'll maintain full eye contact while I finish. She tells me that I'm making things up, imagining things. She always knocks. Clearly all those movies I've been watching have warped my mind. By the third day, I just can't anymore. After an awkward dinner that Mammy made me get out of bed to cook for her, I went to bed early and listening to the rain pattering on the roof, disappeared into sleep. Wake, little one. When I open my eyes, I'm being held aloft, cradled in arms that I know could crush me at a moment's notice. The arms that bear me are as strong as the tide, as stern as the rocks that such a tide might beat against. My head rests on the creature's shoulder. Scales that should be tough bend softly beneath the weight of my forehead. I lift my face to see the creatures, but without my glasses the world is mostly paint smears. Still, as blurred as the world is, I can tell from the colour of the walls that I've been brought to Mammy's bedroom. I don't need my eyes to function at full capacity for the disgusting shade of taupe to turn my stomach. I know that she bought three cans for cheap years and years ago. She had Daddy repaint the room with it. 
Suddenly, I understand why Daddy killed himself. I can't say I would have done any different to escape the look of this ceiling in my marital bed. Through all of these thoughts cuts another noise. It is pain, anguish, but not self-pity. I am placed on the carpet feet first. My unbraced legs buckle under my weight, but the creature slips a hand under my armpit to support me. For a moment, I think I hear a voice. It is soft. It echoes kindness. Careful, it whispers, and I am inspired to try to be careful. Mammy's voice cuts through my confusion. She's somewhere in the corner by the bed. She asks me what that disgusting thing wants from her. She tells it that it cannot have me, that I am hers, that I have always belonged to her. She uses the exact tone she used when Cousin Judy's dog shat in the lounge. The one she used to convince me that selling my video game console was really my idea and how I should have been grateful. The tone I overheard her using when she told everyone at her office that they would get fired if they got caught talking to me because I'm bad news. The one she uses when she says that I'm the problem. That I've always been the problem. That there's something wrong with me. Unlike me, the creature doesn't flinch at her tone. Instead, it places the other hand on my shoulder and gently guides me towards one of the bedposts. I grip the varnished wood as if it's a life preserver in a storm at sea. I hold myself upright, blinking the sleep from my eyes, willing my fuzzy vision to clear. I hate being so fucking blind. Even over the saltwater tang of the creature, the room still reeks of mammy. It's ancient milk and stale clothes that haven't quite dried completely. It's old socks that I can taste right in the back of my throat. I squint at the place where I see Mammy's outline. She's sitting on the floor, propped against the wall like a retired marionette. As I inch closer, using the bed for balance, I see the wash of bright merlot that drenches the front of her nightgown. The left side of Mammy's face is mangled. Two deep furrows in her cheeks gush and gush. But Stella is nothing if not a proud beast, and although her legs are quivering twigs beneath her, she makes a show of rising to her feet. She glares at me as she does, brown eyes searing into me like molten cigarette ends. But there's nothing unusual about that. I am so very aware of the creature's webbed claws still resting on my shoulder. But as much as I may want to slap it off and scramble for freedom, I don't. In this moment, I feel seen. It's unlike anything I've ever known. I don't know how I would explain it, even to Lydia. Is this how normal people feel every day? I want more. The surge of belonging wells up within me. It threatens to pour out of me in tears that I don't believe will ever stop if I let a single one slip. There's something else. Something that ripples through me as if I'm a pond. It's a voice at the bottom of my being. It wriggles at the base of my skull like a mealworm. Whispers scratching at the back of my mind like a hungry dog, frantic to get in. They aren't words, or rather, not words I know. But all the same, they convey their messages and images of things I've never seen. I don't know yet what any of it means, but I'm beginning to understand. The images weave through me as if I'm a tapestry slowly revealing its final form. It feels like truth. The hulking creature beside me coughs, yips, gargles. I'm not quite sure which. But as my mind begins to pick apart the sounds, to process the noises, 
The words come fully formed into my consciousness as if they originated from me. But I know beyond a doubt where it is that they came from. Ask. Ask her. So I do. Mammy! I say, tears making my words crackle like old leaves. Tell me what I need to know. She resists at first. Starts to remind me that I belong to her. But the creature is on her before she can finish the sentence. It encases her face in an enormous webbed hand, making certain that Mammy has a clear view from between its fingers. Mammy doesn't take the hint and calm down. Instead, she struggles. I don't need to hear the words she uses to know that they're unkind. And of all the things in this moment, they're directed at me. In response, the creature snaps the little finger straight off Mammy's right hand. It's not the shriek that makes me wince. It's the twig snap of bones as they're compressed in its grip. The white gold ring Stella has always taken time to point out to strangers makes a p sound as it hits the carpet, followed by the mulch of flesh and bone that used to be Mammy's little finger. The creature stares at her with one remaining cue ball eye. Gills flare, then flatten. It croaks again, and this time I hear the words without effort. Ask her again, they say. So I do. Mammy speaks, and although the words were hers when they left her lips, as soon as they hit the air, they became mine. My reality slid out from beneath her, and for a moment, I saw the world as she did. Mammy was in tears, not tears as other creatures understand them. She wears them like jewellery for the rest of the world to see. She had come home to find Daddy's body curled up in the bed, completely peaceful in the absence of movement, more peaceful than she had ever seen him, which in retrospect should have been a clue. She had been calling him all afternoon to come and fetch her from work. He hadn't answered, so she had ordered a taxi to bring her home. She was hungry. She was angry. She felt sticky all over from the interior of that smelly foreign man's vehicle. And now she was home, and Daddy wouldn't even get up to greet her, to bring her slippers, make tea. She noticed the sheet of paper on the table beside him. It was odd. A single sheet straight out of the printer. The Philistine didn't even use the back of an old page. She yelled at him to get up, pushed his shoulder, felt the already stiffening muscles beneath his checked pyjama top. Realisation came. Frustration first, then anger. She snatched up the note, the vein in her temple slamming as she read it. The writing was crisp, each letter executed with blue ink in Daddy's measured hand. It was either me or you. If it had been you, I would have buried you in the woods. The moment after the circus had gone and she was alone, Mammy took Daddy's car. She drove north, listening to that pan-pipe CD of hers over and over and over as she watched the hills roll by. It was a beautiful day. Perfect, as Daddy would have put it. She had eaten nothing but takeaways the last few days. She had some friends who'd brought food and wanted to come in and check on her, but even before she was alone, she'd hated the visits. Mammy didn't know where she was going, but movement seemed to be somehow a better choice than sitting around at home, waiting for the firm to reopen on Monday morning. Sure, she could have come up with work to do, but she was so tired from doing laundry and dishes and making phone calls. She found a small hotel in Araseg, and sitting on one of the wooden benches overlooking the sea, she ordered and drank a particularly sad latte. Mammy wanted to eat, but she couldn't be bothered to touch the sticky menus, so went hungry. 
She climbed back into the car and took whatever road she felt like following, watching the skyline as the normally grey sea shifted to a Caribbean blue as the vehicle wove along tight lanes bordered by even tighter fences. Mammy counted four mostly vacant campsites overlooking anemic beaches. She wondered how they could make enough money to stay open year-round. All the world had a patina of salt. The air was crisp. And when Mammy parked the car on a grass verge, she noticed that if it were not for the clouds, it would have been impossible to tell where the ocean ended and the sky began. Mammy walked across the beach, headed for the cyclopean shards of jagged grey rock that rose from the sand at the waterline. She navigated her way over them, using one hand to keep herself steady as she found her next foothold between the limpets and dehydrated seaweed. The crest of the rocks was worth the climb. The vaporised salt spray dusted her face. Mammy was at a loss with how to proceed with her life. She'd known Daddy since she was 16. He had done all the cooking, the cleaning. She'd always had him to come home to, to pour her problems out on. This wasn't fair. None of it was. She didn't know how to cook, and she shouldn't have to learn. Staring outward, looking for a sign, she sank into herself. Knees folding down, she sat, the uneven edges of the once volcanic stone cutting into the meat of her arse. The damp crawled through the fabric of her 110-quid jeans. She cursed, stood back up, but as she did, she saw something in the corner of her eye, a tiny pink shape in the rock pool just below her. At first, Mammy wondered if it was a doll, but as she squinted, the slight body moved. The world blurred around her as she scrabbled down the rocks towards the pool. Then she was there, staring down through the salt water. Beneath the surface, there was a baby girl, cradled in anemones and swaddled in seaweed. The baby's eyes were dark, spherical orbs that glared upwards through the water, as if trying to comprehend Mammy's perplexed expression. Slits on the child's neck flared open and shut, open and shut. Its tiny pale lips pap-papped beneath the surface, whilst a small hand grasped a mussel shell tight. The child's smile was warm sunshine after an impossible winter. Mammy reached down into the brine, snagging her elbow on a broken limpet shell and leaving a puff of red in the rock pool as she raised the infant up and into the air. The child coughed violently, hacking up the water in its lungs, soaking Mammy's button-up shirt through. Then came the gasp. The baby seemed to draw all the air in the universe into its little lungs. Mucus streamed down the baby's chin and from the now imperceptible slits in its neck. It coughed, an emphysemic cough that expelled the last of the salt water within it. Mammy had bundled me up in her jacket before she'd even thought about why she was doing it. People just do things, mostly. They only take the time to understand why, much, much later. But she knew above all else that I belonged to her, and that was all that mattered. She barely registered the guttural wail that echoed down the beach and scared the shit out of the folks at the nearby golf course. I wept and wept as Mammy wrapped me up in a manky old jumper and put me in the front passenger seat beside her. It was during that drive back south that she first called me Nicola. Nicholas was your father's name, she explained. We were long past Arasag by the time I cried the last of Mother Hydra from my body. After that, Mammy went to incredible lengths to make certain that I had not tasted the true ocean since. When at last she fully comprehended that my body would never really move like hers, she convinced the doctors that it was polio. 
my hunched lope, my bent knees, attributes that would have served me exactly as Father Dagon intended, were all forced out of me. The doctors set to work, contriving braces to hold me erect so others wouldn't notice that I was not the same. With vaccines being as good as they are, few people have seen polio in the last few decades, but they didn't question nearly as hard as they should have. Mammy did what Mammy always does, and forced the issue until they complied. It explained my lungs, too. The glasses followed soon after when she discovered that I was having trouble reading her instructions on the few times I was home from boarding school. I was mercilessly bullied for my jam jar bottom glasses. The childlike mentality I had been brought up with hamstrung me. I was something worse than sheltered. I was an ignorant lamb, sleeping in a dormitory with far more socially equipped wolves. The other girls in my dorm scented my weakness instantly, as kids are wont to do. They pissed on my bed, tipped my locker over, blew their noses on my sheets, called me names from the moment I opened my aching eyes in the morning until the moment I went to sleep. There was more than once that I nearly lost it. Nearly broke an arm, a nose, snapped a neck, while they shoved me around after homework time. I could have murdered every last one of them in their beds while the rest of the school slept. I came close more times than anyone might believe. Instead, in the wee hours of the dawn, I would leave my bed and climb the steps to the top of the church tower. There I would sit and watch the sun rise over the Dorset Hills. The only question on my mind being, should it be today? Should I jump today? Weeping and fighting my leg braces every inch of the way, I climbed onto the stone parapet, though as desperately as I wanted to step off, out into the void. I couldn't bring myself to. When I came home to drink for the holidays, Mammy brought me ointments to moisturise and flatten out the wrinkles that were developing on the sides of my neck. She made appointments with salons to have my entire body exfoliated, to have any foreign bodies plucked. And as I leaned further towards my thirties, more and more appointments to add extensions to conceal my ever-thinning hair. It was, all of it, to retain the world's perception of her as the mother to an alluring and talented daughter that did what she said. That was the only compass she followed. But, all things considered in the tiny room, with the rain slashing against the windows outside, I didn't really need this specific situation to know most of these things. If I said the sky was blue, Mammy would tell me that it was green and make it clear that, if anything, I was crazy to think otherwise. But the word crazy somehow doesn't carry quite the weight it should. The phrase she uses is invariably, there's something wrong with your brain. I stare at her. The woman who has convinced me that she is my blood, that she's always supported me no matter what. I feel foolish. I feel stupid now that I know it all to be lies. I think I've always known. The biggest lie she's managed to feed me is that she is my mother. She hasn't been that in any sense, not when it ever counted. The tears now pour out of me in tidal waves. Mammy's face is pale from loss of blood. I instinctively move to find a cloth, a plaster, something to wrap up the bleeding stump where her finger used to be. But after a single step, I catch myself and stop. The beautiful creature turns to me, its features now more delicate than I ever realised they were. The scales that cover its face are like fine shards of carved labradorite that shimmer as the Batrachian beast lopes towards me. I'm so sorry for your eye, I think. 
and as if in perfect synchronicity, the voice in the back of my heart replies, Do not worry, granddaughter. We are together now. An eye is but an eye, and I have six other senses. At this, the warmth that floods through my frigid body is unlike anything I have ever known. I am thankful. I am wanted. I am free. I am only too happy to eat the apple, to find my truest self in the space between the things that I am not. Grandmother doesn't have to ask the question for my mind to be made up. My teeth grind against each other as I will my legs into the position that they were born to be in. I grin at the prospect of never wearing my braces again. Grandmother's voice comes to me. It is an oceanic breeze that I can barely recall, but the sensation that she sends me is enough. She tells me to hold out my hand, so I do. She presses the handle of a knife into my palm. The proportions of it are all off for the size of my body. I struggle to wrap my infinitesimal fingers around the handle. I feel the strain in my forearm as I work to keep the tool aloft. Do not concern yourself. We all begin as small. Size will find you as the years pass. For now, though, you are enough. I look up to her, and as her single white eye gazes through me, I know that this was my mother's knife. I know what she used it for in our home below the surface, how she carefully prepared meals, used it when threats and tooth and claw were insufficient to discourage predators from their course of action. We do not die easily, not in the way other creatures do. We go on and on, swelling and shrinking like the tide with our fortunes. But your mother could no longer take the pain of your loss. She used it to end her life when she realised that she had lost you. My unwilling mind is awash with mother's limp corpse bobbing in the tide, her throat cut from gill to gill, the blade opening a clean slit through the pallid scales of her neck. Wild fish tearing at her decaying eyeballs, this ornate tool still grasped in her hand, held with the same ferocity with which she would have held on to me, had she had but a second chance to try, had despair not taken her. She was so very beautiful, I say to Grandmother. She nods. I don't know if she can cry, but tears are not the only measure of grief. There are other ways to mourn. The entirety of the knife was hewn from a single whalebone. I know this is fact, as if I myself were responsible for freeing it from the enormous rib. The handle of the knife is ornate. Tiny figures like grandmother, like mother, like me, are delicately carved into the handle. Some dance around a monolith, their faces creased with joy. Others hunt and feast and craft and build. None of these things are my achievements but they make me proud nevertheless. I understand what must happen. Grandmother holds Mammy's mouth shut. She wraps her other webbed fingers around both of Stella's forearms, pinching them together. The pressure holds her in place, sitting on the white carpet pressed against the wall. She couldn't get up even if she wanted to, and I can see that she really wants to. Stella doesn't need her razor tongue free for me to hear her curses, her eyes articulate every hateful thing she has ever thought. The malice erupts from every inch of her being. I contemplate goodbyes, perfunctory words of thanks, but I know that we're far beyond any of that. 
Her eyes widen as the blade touches her throat. A glistening bead of merlot forms and streaks down her wrinkled flesh. I add pressure, straining my forearm as I drag the pale blade through her. The heat of the blood warms my knuckles. Wet strands spider down my forearm and leap off my elbow and down onto the carpet. This moment, this act, is the closest Mammy and I have ever been. When she's finally gone, my face dissolves into an ocean of tears. I don't bother to rinse the blood from my hands before I message Lydia. There really wouldn't be any point. Please look after the guppies. I won't be back. I'm sorry we could never be more than we were. But maybe, perhaps in another life, the stars would have been different. I drop the phone on the floor and Grandmother helps me up to my still wobbly feet. She supports my weight as we navigate our way down the rain-slathered stairs into Stella's garden. My breaths are stunted. In between each step, I am fighting to draw the oxygen I need. Grandmother holds me close. She assures me that when the salt water fills my parched lungs, my limbs will find their strength. And I believe her. Under my bare feet, the grass is soft. It tickles. Rain washes the last remnants of tears from my face. I can hear the river raging ahead, just beyond the edges of my vision. Not much further. Grandmother holds my hand in hers. The word trust echoes through my mind. I lean forward and we plunge. I am the water. The water is me. Mother Hydra, I love you. Your daughter is home. Hello, kiddies. So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wicked library and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. (laughs) Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. (laughs) How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? (laughs) 